This is Mind Rolling, and I'm Raghu Marcus with another edition. This is a special edition in that it comes from our spring retreat in Maui, in which I managed to get together with Bob Thurman, who was one of the uh, presenter teachers at the retreat, which was all around love and emptiness, and Duncan Trussell, my good buddy, my podcast guru. Now, the strange thing that happened here is that my son, Noah Marcus, who works for the foundation, put together that wonderful, uh, edited that wonderful book we just have out now, by the way, called Changing Lenses, which is Ramdas's uh, greatest hits and rarities of stories that he has told throughout the years in his talks. So there's some wonderful, wonderful stories in there. And so Noah said to me, you know, I'd really like to talk to Bob because I have some questions around some um, some of the articles that I'm writing. I said, okay, let's do, a, we'll get Bob and we'll we'll do a little podcast and then we'll throw Duncan in there in the mix to make it even more crazy and interesting. And then the podcast opened up, as you'll hear in a minute, and, and my son said, okay, I'm taking over now. I'm taking over from Raghu. I said, oh, really? Okay. This is like the changing of the guard, I guess. Uh, so all of a sudden, he starts interviewing Bob and and uh, Duncan and so on. So uh, this is... Uh, I kind of feel a lot of pride about it, actually. I never even knew he was interested, honestly. And uh, he just thought it would be a fun thing, but this may be something uh, that uh, he'll continue, uh, which would make me happy. Uh, so here uh, is this uh, lovely, lovely podcast. And of course, Bob... Uh, there's a talk about right livelihood, which is what Noah really wanted to get at him uh, about, that is uh, quite phenomenal. Of course, Bob has a lot, a lot of wisdom uh, from his many, many years of closeness to His Holiness the Dalai Lama and his study of, of Buddhist texts and so on. I mean, I think I've mentioned before, because I've had Bob on Mind Rolling, that I said he learned Tibetan to speak Tibetan within two months. Actually, he learned it within seven weeks. So, uh, with uh, here, here we go. I can't think of anything else. Is there anything else I should be saying about Be Here Now Network? Just go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash mindrolling and you will find all of the show notes and everything else, and we'll give you some real cool links to further uh, elucidate whatever's coming through in this particular episode. And uh, I will see you next week on Mind Rolling. This is a passing to of the Neil, mantle to my son. Oh, okay. cool. I am, I am hijacking okay, that's Mind good. Rolling. All right. Yes. Good. And your name right. is Neil, right? And I'm Noah. Oh, Noah. Noah Marcus. For those of you who don't know me, yeah. <laughs> One continent. Okay, so, uh, okay, Noah. So, yeah, I'll introduce ready, myself. Man. Ready for the arc. Yeah. 
I am <laughs> I am Raghu's son, and I do yeah. some work for the foundation. Okay. I do some writing for uh, the Awakened Heart blog, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's see, I I am hijacking the show today. That's really great. Cool. Your, your, your mom is Parvati. My mom is Parvati. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and oh, so sorry. let's see. No, I, I didn't know it's your own. Okay. Mom is Parvati. Yeah. That's an honor. Dad is Raghu. And dad is Raghu. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I'm here with Raghu, with the venerable Robert Thurman. And with Duncan, uh, I, my identity is Psychedelic Strussel. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> Let's start there. Let's just start there. Psychedelic Struggle? That's, no. That's your moniker? You want to start at that? Yeah, because Bob didn't get to hear that this Thank morning. Thank God, I didn't that think. was bomb. Well, I was just, t- we were talking about, uh, you know that bit of spaciousness you get when you start seeing your personality and, yeah, sure. and stopping the habituation. Yeah. So I was telling this story that happened recently with my wife because she was going to a retreat and I wanted to do ketamine, psychedelic, oh. you know, to go oh, into yes, the yes, cave. Yes. And she's like, maybe not. Maybe you shouldn't do it. And uh, I got mad. And this, oh, you know, no. that thing that pops out of your mouth, you know, the embarrassing thing. You can't stop it, though, that shows the truth. <laughs> so I like squeaked out. Psychedelics are my identity. <laughs> and, oh, oh God, so embarrassing. <laughs> and then there was just a silence following that as we both looked at each other and I realized like, oh, wow, how ridiculous. What a ridiculous thing to get attached to, you know? It's all right. Um, so it was embarrassing. And I said that today in front of all those people. I, I in thought that case, that was great. it's the identity of identitylessness. Mm. Like Nairatmya Paramatma, supreme self of selflessness. You know. Yeah. Uh-huh. Psychedelics shatters your identity. Of course, that's that's the value of it. Well, that's right. That is the value of it. Mm-hmm. But you can also stop shattering your identity and just start using psychedelics as a kind of tail feather that you waggle around. You well, know? yeah, if you to do low doses. That's it, and that's <laughs> you know. But that that's right. But this is the whole microdosing. You know, there's a huge microdosing yeah, movement, yeah. and it's beautiful and good. But I was, I was like, I think one of the problems is you don't get the anvil of yeah. um, the the anvil of the gods crushing your identity. You get these sure. little euphoric bursts, yeah. and so you w- might be able to build an identity around psychedelics, float tanks, ayahuasca. Okay. The next thing you know, sure. that's you know, that's who you I say know. you are. Yeah. That's right. And but, there is a lot of this that's going on in our culture <laughs> now, in terms of identifying with "I am a ayahuasca taker," or "I'm a Buddhist," or "I'm a Buddhist," or, or I, "I'm a spiritual person." I'm an ayahuasca. Oh yeah, yeah, everybody has some kind of identity hangups. Yes, and that's. Uh, we're that's this whole uh this film we have a film bob i didn't tell you about rock yeah. it's called becoming nobody becoming nobody yeah <laughs> and in it ram Dass, you know goes through the thing he's done all yes of yes he's always been about, good at that yeah you you're just stuck on your role and your identity and your somebodyness right right and i was at harvard and then but i went to india and I found a nobody, basically. I see. <laughs> that, he didn't a, find it in the Millbrook bowling alley? No, he did not. He, did. <laughs> he, he found did something it? in there. I don't know about that. <laughs> wow, uh, the, what a... Uh, <laughs> what? The okay. Millbrook bowling alley, we should talk about that. Oh, well, oh, I wasn't there, so I just okay. heard about it. 
All right, what's the? All right, well, yeah, we're we're talking about uh, identity already, and uh, can we talk a little bit about movie of me stuff that I I just have a couple questions about? Yeah. So we've been talking, yes. uh, three of us, a lot yes, about uh, the concept of the movie of me, the Katie's yes, right. concept of I don't know. One right. of you could probably Bob do knows the, it well. Yeah. Right. Um. So here we 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 have a good idea of what the movie of me is. We all have that yeah. picture. Now, what I'm trying to get at these days is what does the movie of us or the movie of we look like? And right. do you have any insight there? I Something that you said struck me the other day. Em, sorry, it, uh, emptiness is selflessness. Right. That's and a, I it's felt equated, like... It's equated with that. That's, mm-hmm. that's a good place to start for the right. movie of us. Well, or, well, selflessness just means resilience of identity. And the way that you achieve that is that is actually the specialty of the Buddha and of Nagarjuna and all of the great Buddhist inner scientists is the formation of identity, the deconstruction of identity, and actually the reconstruction of identity once that once you have the true resilience of identity. Because there's no staying in a state of identitylessness. You know that's a that's itself a state kind of you know. So what's the resilience? It's right? such a resilient, great word. Yeah, resilience is the real thing. Meaning you can you realize because well, that's see the key thing about emptiness. People wrongly think that when you realize emptiness, you have an experience of nothingness, and that makes you kind of devil may care about everything, and you just don't give a you know F, you know G A F you know you just don't do it, and then you just can do whatever you like. And then we have a lot of bad gurus who behave badly and they claim, yeah, because I realized emptiness, which is ridiculous. Actually, nobody realizes emptiness. Emptiness is because you already are emptiness if you're a relative being, and therefore you simply surrender to your relativity is what realizing emptiness means. And so realizing emptiness means that all, and the last bastion actually of the identity habit is to have an experience that you think fits with your preconceived idea of nothing, which is like an obliteration experience. And then you think, oh, that was emptiness, so now I'm enlightened. (laughs) But that's a BS, you know. And, of course, then you feel good about that experience. It's an important experience to experience nothing, to let yourself go kind of down the drain, surrender to it. But actually, obviously, nothing is not a place you can stay because it's nothing. <laughs> so, and that actually knowing that helps you to overcome the fear of it. But to do, to to let yourself go into nothing requires overcoming a certain fear. And but the best way of going through that fear is realizing that, well, nothing can't keep me because it doesn't exist. And then you go into what's called emptiness. But in a way, you don't have an experience of it directly. What you do is you have the experience of relative things, but they don't see you. You experience them in a lighter way where they don't seem to be really what they seem to be anymore. They used to seem to be, not as my old Lama used to say, the, the, the Mongolian guy, you see them still as real, but you don't see them any longer as really real. Mm-hmm. You realize they're kind of magically real. Right. And so what that means is the realization of emptiness makes you finally realize that any sense of identity that you have is a work in progress, is a relational activity. And you are a work in progress, and therefore you, it makes you responsible for how you create yourself. 
and how you shape yourself. And obviously, because there's a release involved in letting go of all the, the, the preconditioned identities, there's a feeling of freedom and relief and release, and therefore you feel better than anything else, really, than you ever did. And so th that better feeling radiates outward as love because you, 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 you also begin to see others as feeling better than even they think they feel. <laughs> and so you become an entertainer. That's cool. You, you become like how to get them to chuckle out of there, like laughing or whatever, yeah. you know, freak out, chuckle out of their rigid sense of, I don't feel that good enough, you know. Yeah. And because uh, you see that actually they feel better, but they just, their brow is all knitted and you immediately feel that when you have that experience like that. But it's not an experience of a big space. That's so, that's BS. That's mm. actually a trap. The big space one is a valuable one, but you have to know ahead of time that, oh, even the space one is my idea of what a free space is. Because the mind is so powerful. Mind creates everything. So it can create you feeling, I'm God, or I'm this, or I'm that. And you shouldn't be stuck even on that, you know, mm. actually. Yeah. Well, and then when you're not, you become a participant in relativity, and then there's nothing to do but, in the words of the famous Hindu Buddhist, love, serve, and remember. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah. You don't become a big boss, which is what the guru people want to be, and yeah. they think they, they want to be worshipped, and they want to be a boss, and, th and that means they haven't really gotten there. They didn't really give it up. You know, and the you know, remember Gate, Gate, Paragate? Mm. You know, if the the blacks with the jazz, you know, that's real gone, man. I mean, it's amazing how the sort of hipster language has somehow subliminally come up from the underground, the unconscious, and it fits with the highest like enlightened mantras. Mm. It's really amazing. Yeah. Because gate, gate means gone, gone. Mm. Super gone, man. Super gone. Super <laughs> totally gone, man. All hail Bodhi, you know. Yeah. That's what it is. All right, what's the so next? so the resilience, so therefore the yeah. resilience. And then, then that's where then India is so great because Tantra comes in, whether Shaivite, Hindu, Vaishnavite, Buddhist, whatever it is. And and then that's the art of constructing divine identities within a context. Mm -hmm. And the reason it was esoteric is if someone hasn't completely surrendered all grasping of identities, if they get the tools of constructing identity, they'll become megalomaniacs. Because they'll, they'll shift the rigidity and non-resilience of identity from being a human to being like big, you know, Shiva or something, do you know what I mean? Or Mrs. Shiva or whatever, you know. And what then, they, then they become insufferable, you know. Yeah. This... Reminds me of yes, yes, the venerable Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Yes, no, I don't want to be venerable. I, I the um, the that's the best kind. That's how Aquaman got the trident. I gotta finish it. We watched. The oh, I'm sorry. Movie. Oh, shh. I did a spoiler. I knew it. Aquaman had a trident, so you didn't spoil it. I just don't. Okay, know okay. That. I won't say anymore. I won't the, say anymore. The um, <laughs> the. Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche. Yeah. There's a great documentary on him, and yeah. and I don't understand it completely. Dilgo Kinsey. Uh, well, they said he was people would come and bring him their lineages or something. Like Who? Dilgo Kinsey. Oh, Dilgo Kinsey. Yeah. They would. It was some kind of lineage. Like they would come and. Give, oh, they all hung up about that. Okay. <laughs> so it's I don't know what it meant, but the the story is 
he was sitting there were all these monks coming to like talk with him and he was having little darshan yes and most of the monks i don't know i guess they were illustrious or something but in the yeah, back they of tend the room, to get to be illustrious yeah but there was in the back of the room this old man in like tattered robes yeah okay and dilgo kinsey <laughs> rinpoche notices him and and says come here come here and they go into another room in the and, movie in the movie, in the documentary. Wow. And they go and talk for, you know, two hours. Yeah. Because whoever that guy was, this yeah. unremarkable guy. Right. That guy was a somebody. Right, right, right. Who had just sort of come down. Well, and, he was a nobody somebody, right. Yeah. Nobody somebody. Nobody. Right, right, right. Yeah, true. that. <laughs> nobody somebody. That's great. But this is, this this thing that you're, that you're talking, we're all talking about, it, it runs counter to all of the conditioning. And it's revolutionary. It's communist. Because capitalism, for capitalism to work, you need this identity that gets defined by yeah, right, stuff right. you buy. Yeah, so it is revolutionary. Listen, yeah. Bob, yeah. how about this? What? I have often wanted, I've thought about it, and, you know. It's been a question. All of us that went to India, Ramdas, yes. Richard to Ramdas, yes. Jeffrey to Krishnadas, Mitchell to Raghvidradas, yes. which is my real name, full name. He gave us all names, this being. Yes. And uh, we're talking about re-identifying oneself. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, that's a reconstruction of a, you know, he's giving you spiritual names and in, in helping you align yourself with it. And actually, most of us have a real gratitude to express to in theogenics or psychedelics. Because he, those great gurus like him and the Dalai Lama, Dingo Kenze, Mike Shivangel, they recognized that we all had these kind of shattered identities mm. by having had that, that, that uh, vision quest experience. In an industrial culture, we don't have plants, you know, so they, Mr. Hoffman, you know, found some air <laughs> government, you know, yeah. some, some, some mold <laughs> he gave to us. And uh, that was really valuable because otherwise we were Americans, you know, and I like ridiculous identities and um, very destructive actually on the planet. So then we just wandered out and these, these blessed people, uh, they, they gave us tools to begin to reconstruct in some way some kind of viable, helpful, loving identity, you know. Wow. And, yeah. um, and, but, you know, we gravitated toward it. It isn't just that. It wasn't just the psychedelics, and it wasn't just the historical moment. But it was also, we, for our previous lives, you know, we, we came here. America is actually some, there's an idea that is America that is still good, you know. I really, uh, I get upset with people who completely blast it, you know. And, and it's, they have every right. Genocide of the native people, enslavement of the black people, etc. You know, a bunch of nonsense, but uh, really bad, violent stuff. You know, and um, but Jefferson and those guys, they learned from the Iroquois Confederacy. You know, the white roots of peace. You know, Deganawida. You know, the Onondaga and the Mohawk and the Algonquin, and they tried to, and they felt the energy of America, which is kind of a magical continent all the Americas, and they tried to have an ideal of equality, you know, and all this kind of thing that they couldn't do in the old world because of those rigid identities and all the all the caste system, and that includes Asia. Asia had its caste system, Chinese hierarchies, you know, they had. And um, and so we, we somehow took rebirth in America, and then we kind of helped deconstruct 
a too violent an idea of America to some extent. And then we were lost, so we then were found kind of by by these beautiful people. But they probably knew of our past lives, too. Mm-hmm. That they, And some of us, they kind of made a thing. But if they gave us recognition, that would be bad. Then we'd become all gurufied, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we'd, be, we'd, we'd exploit that and use Which, it in a stupid way. Which is why Ramdas, you know, and I look at it now and I see the, the level of honesty, humility, etc. Yes. He could not do anything yes. but act in a compassionate, kind, I know. Man, peaceful manner. I know, that is wonderful. I mean, Ramdas, you know, I knew him before that. I know. <laughs> and he was a professor, you know, and he was whatever, wealthy, from wealthy family and professor, and like, you know. With a real identity. And there's a weird thing. You know, I taught at Harvard a few years, you know, mm. visiting professor from when I was used to be in Amherst. They tried to lure me there when I wanted to graduate school. And you have a funny, I had a funny experience going to the faculty club one day and I was walking along the sidewalk and I suddenly thought, wow, I must be a genius. <laughs> I'm teaching at Harvard. <laughs> so not, I mean, I had already been an undergraduate and graduate, yeah, yeah. but there's a kind of arrogance. It's kind of ruined the place a little bit lately. I know. Oh, yeah. But it has a magic. Do you know in Chinese, you know what it's called? Hafo Dashe. And Hafo is phonetic for Harvard, you know, two syllables. But the guy who picked it in the 19th century, I don't nobody knows who it was, but because it's carved on some Chinese stones in characters right in front of Widener Library. But the guy who picked it picked the character Ha, which means to laugh, and Fo means a Buddha. Wow. So it's the University of the Laughing Buddha. Oh. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, but they don't know that. <laughs> they, they, they're the laughing capitalists. You know? Well, they made, the, they made the Unabomber. <laughs> yeah, he was a classmate of mine, That's... but I didn't know him. But I was also the same class of 62. Wow. Oh, and uh, and uh, he's a Theodore, whatever he is. Theodore right? Kaczynski. Yeah, yeah. but that's terrible. You can't of... kill innocent people. You can't do that. That's terrorism. Well, it's you know? terrible. But the guy's that's... completely crazy. What? So he's but, not so but he, yeah, yeah. But he got He's very smart nut, apparently. Yes, there the are people CIA who really like him. Right? Yeah. It was the CIA. It was the it was the whatever the precursor of the CIA was, which I can't remember the name. And the, what's the, before the CIA, what was it called? OSS. The OSS was working with the guy running the psychology department at Harvard, yeah. who was doing these crazy experiments on Kaczynski, who got a scholarship when he was 16. So he really? was- Oh yeah, it's look into it, it's so weird. Is that in the Pollen book, Michael Pollen book? I, I, didn't, don't, see, I didn't see that piece of information. No, I, the Pollen book is, what. that's the one- uh, The Pollen book is beautifully researched about the psychedelic yeah. movement. No, they skipped Kaczynski. He doesn't, I don't think Kaczynski fits really? in. Really, I didn't see that particular piece. That's interesting, I didn't know that. Well, he was- That's do- before McClellan, you mean, and before Tim and, and Richard and Metzner. Yeah, I, I can't I can't remember the professor's name now. The, the, I thought a, that was happened in, in Toronto, in Canada. They didn't do it in the states no it's harvard and they really? broke that man and they they were keeping him in the dark they oh. think they might have been giving him acid and then they were humiliating him because they oh, wanted no. to see if you could destroy someone's identity and replace it with something else oh yeah like uh okay oh jesus well that's all terrible stuff yeah. terrible. All, right, terrible. all right all right sorry move well, along good good time sorry, sorry about about that. Yeah. it's okay no what now what's, right, so, what's next no. so here's what's next uh okay uh, i've been working on this article for too long now yeah um Right livelihood. I, I'm stuck on it. Oh yes, yeah, so, uh, I, I know it's it's a fairly simple thing, right? Um, it's but a I, good I, thing. I'm stuck. Can can you just Why? give me a right livelihood 101? Sure. Real quick. Right, li- you know, actually, I don't like right. 
and wrong. I like realistic and unrealistic for the Eightfold Path, because the point is it's whatever connects to reality. Right and wrong are sort of like following a rule, you know, and the Western ethics coming from Christianity on the one side, yeah. and then the other side, sort of whatever. It's like you're following rules, you know, laws. You know? But realistic means you have a livelihood that is the best way of fitting in with reality and living relativity, you know. And the best thing for human life is not to be harmful. So that's basically all it is. You don't be a butcher, if possible. You don't be. You definitely don't own chicken farms and slaughterhouses. You don't trade in weapons, poisons, drugs, human trafficking, anything that's harmful to beings, animals or people. It's basically realistic livelihood. But the Buddha was more practical than the Mahavira, who he was a colleague with, in a way, who who was so freaked out about it that, you know, you... You couldn't breathe in the air because there might be a bug in it and you know and then you couldn't and the buddha allowed his monks for example if they went to a household that ate meat and they gave them some chicken soup they could have it but if they, they said oh well we're going to make some chicken soup we have to go kill a couple of chickens then we'll make some chicken soup then they said no thanks and leave right but if they're already eating that and that's what they eat you can't refuse actually mm. unless you're allergic to it or something and so then the Jains were all, up, you know, wound up about that, about the Buddhists. But the point is, in those days, that was realistic. And you didn't blame those people. And, you know, they, they had an argument against a certain guy who was not a Jain and not a Buddhist, but another one of those early teachers who had a thing where you just starve yourself to death. And when your body dies, then you attain moksha, they thought. Yeah. But then Buddhists were against that because if you starve yourself to death, you kill your microbiome. And the Buddhists knew about the microbiome, ancient medicine. Really? And, you know, yeah, sure. They knew you were made up of a community of beings. Your own body was. Yeah. And so if you kill yourself, you're killing a lot of other beings who, who are a colony inside yourself. So he was sort of, there is a certain amount of harmfulness you can't avoid as a human being. But the idea is you use this platform of the human life with its intelligence and its vulnerability and sensitivity, and therefore kind of urgency about becoming something higher. And then you try to become a being of light. You know, you try to become like Obi-Wan, you know, Jedi and uh, a Buddha. And then you can really be helpful to others. And then you really are not harmful because you don't need ordinary food and you don't need, you know, you just live, you're just being of energy. You know, that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a Buddhahood. It's like that. Okay. So. And you could manifest this coarse body where you'd go and have to hang out with people and be like them a little bit to get close to them. But you actually don't need a thing, you know. But, but technically, it's such a preposterous definition for materialists. We don't agree with it. We can't really believe in it if we're brought up materialists. But a Buddha is a being who is consciously aware of themselves, their body and mind, from the micro energy, pure energy level, you know, if you think of your hand as made of quantum energy, right, there's atoms in there, but that's just a level of magnification. And inside of that, there's quantum energy. And then there's light inside of that. And of course, light is everywhere. Simultaneously, that's why light can't go faster. <laughs> and so, so if you're conscious of your hand from the light, that's the most deepest level of the presence of the relative level of the presence of the hand, then you can completely, you could grow, you could add 50 fingers if you needed them. Do you know what I mean? You can just make anything out of anything, supposedly. And I grant you, and I realize that is very unrealistic sounding, 
to materialists, but that's how Buddhism is, the Buddhahood is defined. Mm. And in other words, that's the human opportunity of evolving into all these things that I think are coming into the American unconscious by means of the Matrix, the Jedi, you know, sci-fi. Sci-fi really is beginning to make sort of subconsciously seem possible mm. even that you could be a being like the one who is the one, yeah, you know? That we can bend the spoon. Yeah, that's what, I want to make a fourth matrix. I'm desperate to make a fourth <laughs> matrix. I talked to Joel Silver and he didn't want to do it because he didn't want to have to work with those actors, the same actors, you know? But I, I, the only one I still like is Keanu, especially. And mm. I want to resurrect Trinity. Yeah. I don't know how we'll do it, but somehow. And because you, you realize that in the matrix, toward the end and even already in the second one, he started operating with his mind on material objects outside of the matrix. Yes. Remember, he knocked out all those octopuses when he was flying? Yes. And he was, and he, one time, he, when he first did it, was in the tunnel. He was walking around and some octopuses came after him. And he went like, and then knocked it down and then passed out. Yeah. Remember that? Yes. So that's, a, that's beginning to hint that this is a matrix. And, you know, there's a, there is a being who can be the one in this, that is, know the structure of it, the inner design of it, right. as well as participate in it as an individual. Yes. That's kind of cool. But they, didn't, cool. they never unpacked that. No. Mm. Yeah, the third movie was just not that great. I don't know. Well, they, I, they love dropped all, the I love there. all. They except I'm pissed off they killed off Trinity. Yeah. Uh, that, that pissed me off. <laughs> You know, some octopus like put a spike in her heart. I, honestly, you know, I like, don't even remember break. the third movie. Is that what? I don't even remember the third movie. Is that really? Yeah. Well, but it was so cool. The battle. The bad guy even got the ability to multiply his body. And you know how did how did Neo defeat him? It's totally <laughs> Buddhist. They don't even know it themselves. The Wachowski yeah. sisters are yeah. my heroes, heroines. The way that he was defeated, the bad guy actually he just became just as powerful in the Matrix as as Neo. And he defeated him, right? And then he was going to like turn Neo into himself, right? So he plunged his fist into the Neo Matrix. Neo, remember that? And then Neo came and he went. He started going, "Oh no, oh no!" And actually, he became a good guy, like Neo. Oh yeah, that's how. So that's Neo cool. defeated him by becoming uh, him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And he was going to make Neo himself. But once Neo was totally open and willing to embrace even the evil guy. Then the evil guy turned good. Yeah. So he couldn't be the evil guy. That's anymore. cool. Wasn't that cool? Yeah. Then of course that. they dragged the body over back to the computer, and it was all completely confused after that. You know. Have you seen? Have you seen any? any have you ever seen a monk do any of these things? I hear these stories. What thing? Well, I mean, the stories I've heard is they can walk through walls, they can walk on water, they can fly, they can transform they can. into rainbow. By body. definition. They're not just Tibetans, but, you know, Theravada, um, this is all common Indian knowledge, this kind of thing, by definition. Have you observed Have I ever seen them? No, I've heard of it, yes, but I have not seen it. All right, let me interject. Yes? Today, at breakfast, a friend of mine who was with Maharaj, uh -huh. with us back in the day, yes. he has had one experience where he saw Maharaj in a taxi in Chicago where he lived. He said, something else happened to me. He said, what? He said, I went to the Schwitz. You speak louder. I went to the Schwitz. Oh. To the steam bath. With and Maharaji? I, no, no, he went alone. No, Maharaji <laughs> wasn't there. And then he was there. He said there was another man there. Yeah. And steam coming. And then there was one other man came in the room. And this other large gentleman left, he said. The one who came in the room looked like 
uh, you know, a, a, one of these really tall, cut cheek, handsome Danes, right? Yeah. Something. He said, "I swear to God." What? He he walked over to the wall, all right, opposite the door, and went into the wall and disappeared. I believe it, because by definition, I have to. But if I saw it, I'd flip. But but, <laughs> but I have seen. It. I have seen some or some extraordinary things, but you're not supposed to talk about. Right, that's what I thought. Yeah, but but uh, but a little bit, but I didn't see that going through walls and things like that in a way, except on, a, on at certain moments. Actually, I did a little bit, like my my Mongolian guru arrived when you know, like from New Jersey to New York in a moment, etc. So I have a little bit seen that. Yeah, but uh, but you're not supposed to. But but I was in altered state also, so then mm. you could people could say it was just a hallucination. So, and then I have seen some other thing. But then my wife had a killer on this one. My wife once there was an Indian guy who was asking me at a lunch, a wealthy Indian guy in the Trump Tower actually, <laughs> they had an apartment there, and uh, I was about to lunch, and he said, "Well, you know the Dalai Lama, I've seen too many miracles." He's going like that. So I have seen a few things, but I didn't. So I was sort of thinking in my mind, what did I say, you know? And he said, I didn't want to completely disappoint him, but uh, you're not supposed to talk about it. So my wife, Nina, immediately says, oh, yes, many times. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? And then, and then, the guy's leaning on the edge of his chair. And I also, I'm going, well, what did she say? So then she says, well, I've been, we've, been, we've hosted him a lot of times in different events. And, you know, we've sort of monitored him like Raghu does with other people coming and going and all that sort of thing. And she said, in all of those events, with everybody wants a piece of the Dalai Lama, she said, in all of those events, I have never seen him not give his 100% attention mm. to whoever was in front of him seeking his companionship. And the guy goes, oh. And then she says, that's a miracle. She says, <laughs> and he goes, ah. Oh, you know, he, yeah, yeah, I mean, let's not leave that point. That is the biggest miracle. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, in the Buddhist literature, they say the biggest miracle about a Buddha is his speech. Mm. Because it's through a Buddha's speech of teaching Dharma that other beings have can open to their own potential. Mm. You know, rather than showing a miracle. Although Buddha, wow. you know, in many of the sutras, Buddha definitely performs miracles. In the Vimalakirti Sutra, he performs awesome miracles that are really cool. But then, you know, when I, I translate it, I write an introduction. You guys can see this as an allegory, or you can think maybe these kind of extraordinary things are possible if you if you are open, if you can open your mind like that. But you can do it whatever way you want. It doesn't matter. Well, can you talk about the stricture <laughs> on discussing this stuff? In the which which one? Well. To me, the fascinating thing I've d discovered in Buddhism is the realization that there are levels oh, that yeah. are concealed. And oh, yeah. within those levels are these miracles, but they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to put it out there. And I Yeah, Buddha forbid them to put it out there. So, what, what so was, it's a breaking of the monastic vow to proclaim your six clairvoyances and demonstrate them. Although occasionally they did for some particular reason. Wow. But basically, he didn't want them... Becoming, you know, like circus performers and freaks and, and gaining popularity that way. And then people coming to him and like wanting them to perform miracles. Right. He wanted them, in fact, to educate people and educate themselves. And then occasionally maybe use something in some case where it was saving a life or doing something. Yes, yeah, so like he himself did. Like that guy, the serial killer that he tamed and who became an arhat, 
a saint who had killed 999 people. He manifested himself looking like his mother and he did martial arts and he wore the guy out. And then, you know, it's a, it's so he occasionally did it himself. You know, and they, they you say know. it's possible. And from the point of view, quantum physics since 1926, Copenhagen Declaration has proven to us that we do that materialism does not have a solid grasp on the nature of reality, right. and therefore anything is possible. Sure, but but to open your mind to that when you grow up with materialism is another matter. Yeah, really. Do you know what Maharaji called miracles? What pig shit. Big shit. That's, that's right. That's good. He said, but "Oh yeah, they used to have contests in the old days, you know." But occasionally, listen. I I saw. I, I should say, I saw a miracle once when I wasn't stoned. I was totally <laughs> ordinary. It was like a semi-dream, sort of dream, reverie, whatever you want to call it. And it was very visceral. And it was in 1971. You will really like this one. And. Uh, it was when Russians and Chinese were fighting on the thing. Bangladesh, horrible business was going on. Nixon and Kissinger were, were against Mrs. Gandhi, and they were like, wanted the Chinese to invade to save Bangladesh for the West Pakistanis who were committing suicide, genocide there. It was a horrible time, you know. It's the time that Ram Dass talks about where he said it's perfect, but it stinks. You know? Yeah, well, so he it was wanted that to take time. his both right. So yeah. I had just uh, had some thing in a high griva, but the fierce form of Avalokiteshvara, I had had some teaching about that. I was trying in my pathetic way to deal with it and uh, not mastering it all, even still. And But then I had this weird, like, dream. And in the dream, it was really, really visceral. And in that dream, uh, Nixon had given Brezhnev, he had shut down Kissinger, who wanted him to open negotiation with China. And although Kissinger was still preparing it, but anyway, he had authorized Brezhnev to nuke China, nuke Mao, because Brezhnev, the Russians hated, hated them, and they hated Mao, they, they really did. And the Chinese were just beginning to get a little mini nuclear stuff, but nothing much. And so it was time to obliterate them before they do. And Nixon had authorized Brezhnev to do that, because in the dream. And, um, and um, then they were calling back and forth, and they their red phones, you know, and far from preventing a crisis, they were about to create a crisis. And suddenly I was riding on the back or sort of in the hairdo of Hayagriva. And he had this like flaming hair, you know, it's like one of those kind of fierce Buddhas in this case, not really a protector, but, and Hayagriva is related to Shiva, you know, Hayagriva means the horse neck. And it's, it's, I remember Shiva swallowed the poison and yeah. he got the blue neck. And so it's a little bit related to that. And um, so I was riding on the back. I was not with the Dalai Lama. He was in a different village in the Himalayas, but I was in the Himalayas. And um, so I kind of was associated with him, but in a higher grieve form, but never mind. That, that was just my fantasy in the dream. And I was looking down and I could see the White House and I could see the Kremlin. And they were pressing buttons. And strangely, Tim Leary was in Switzerland at the time. And somehow his presence in Switzerland was critical to somehow the link. I don't know why. I just throw it out there because <laughs> I think it intrigued you. It didn't intrigue me. And I was aware of him there in his Mahakala form, actually. And who was his another what? kind of uh, Mahakala. But he, never mind. Tim this, Leary had a Mahakala form? He had a Tanka. It was given to him by my teacher, wow. that of amazing Tanka Mahakala. So my, in my dream, he was connecting to yeah. Mahakala. And somehow he was making a link between Washington and Moscow. So then Brezhnev pressed all the buttons, totally. 
and they, they were going to fly. And this, I could feel this higher river thing under me, and he just put his head like went map like that, and his hair, his flaming hair, sort of went into all the electronics. <clears throat> the hair, yeah, and I could feel it, you know. But I mean, I didn't wasn't doing that. I was like, hang on for dear life. Yeah, and. Then there was phone calls, and I was here. I was able to hear all the phone calls, like an NSA spying organization or something, in the dream. And there were phone calls going back in Russian, but I somehow was understanding Russian, which I don't. And they were saying, "But Mr. Secretary, nothing is. We get no impulse. But there's nothing wrong with any circuit. But no impulse is coming." And then Nixon was saying, "Well, get on with it. What's the matter? Well, it's not working." <laughs> they were freaking out. And and then I had this funny thing where Brezhnev, I don't know what the kind of button the Russians had, but it looked like he was masturbating because <laughs> he was like <laughs> pressing a button. You know, like, he was like like one of those things that controls a slide projector. You know, he was there and his hand was going up and down, and nothing was happening. And uh, and then he suddenly the room, the roof of the Kremlin and the roof of the White House became transparent, and they looked up. And they saw Hayagriva in the sky, somehow over both places, like really fearsome sight, you know, like really looking at wrathful deity, you know. And they both looked like naughty boys. <laughs> and and then the sort of the dream was over. And um, I was like shaken. It was like really vivid, like total vivid. And um, and then the next morning, I go down to our Volkswagen bus that we had at that time, 1971, in India. And because I want to drive down and get some groceries or something, and then somebody had smashed the window with a with a brick wrapped in a newspaper, mm. and a Hindi newspaper, and the newspaper had the 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 flash thing. Nixon goes from Rawalpindi to Beijing, <laughs> and some Tibetan somehow associating me with the Americans, I think, considering it a betrayal. Smashed my window, and he wrapped it in the newspaper of a thing. And I had, you know, it took it took me months to find another Volkswagen front windshield. <laughs> and I swear, His Holiness. And oh, and then oh, the last thing of the dream. The last thing of the dream was a little side transmission from Joe and Lai, but to the high agreement. Not to, again, not to. I was just eavesdropping on it all, and he was laughing at the Dalai Lama. And he would say, ha, ha, ha. You can't even bear to see the destruction of your enemies. Ha, ha, ha. Oh. Wow. He would say, oh. wow. Really, I swear. So I consider that some miraculous thing that Dalai Lama did to prevent some mass horrible Chinese genocide, you know, even wow. though they were torturing the Tibetans at that time mm. in the worst way. Zhou Enlai was laughing mm. in his face. <laughs> I actually put it in my graphic novel biography. Oh yeah, of the, of, if you of remember his that, it's toward the end, very daringly, and I'm terrified of the day when His Holiness actually bothers to read it. <laughs> he it down and he says, "What is this?" <laughs> you know, because I have him sort of, I have him sort of sitting over. I have high agreement. It wasn't the right representation of high agreement, but it's the best the artist could do. And I have him sitting meditating with the light coming out. 
and sort of associating him with the higher group. But and he will know, I think, what I'm talking about, and he'll be pissed off. <laughs> but then, then the later thing about it, you know, and I'm totally skeptical too, and etc. But the later thing about it was the next year I was finishing my PhD at, and I visited the campus at Harvard and I talked to a guy named Holmes Welch who was a Harvard China scholar wrote about Chinese Buddhism was a friend of mine very delicate kind of guy and I said to him I said did he ever hear anything because some of those Harvard professors have connections in Washington you know? so did he ever hear anything about a, an aborted alliance between Nixon and the Russians to do something to the Chinese and <laughs> How did you know about? He, he initially said, "How did you hear about that?" Wow. He's all like wound up, and then oh, of course, no, I never heard anything. You know, and then he got his personality back wow. on. So I think there was sure something like that, sure, mm. and I think it was stopped like that. Wow! So that gives me the weird faith that has always given me. You know, and my old Geshe Wanga once before then, I think before, earlier than that, once drew himself up when people were freaking out about a possible nuclear holocaust, and he said. There will never be a nuclear holocaust, he said. I guarantee it, he said. <laughs> and then one of those kind of things, that Mongolian thing, you know, like, wow. okay, great, you guarantee it. You know? <laughs> but, you know, he, he was connected with that kind wow. of thing. Wow. He knew about that. That's cool. He, That's really, quite I a, thought you'd like a dream there. Right? I, and I like it. I don't mind sharing it with the, because, because uh, it's just my own right. dream fantasy, A and B. Maybe some people will get my own dumb confidence that at least, we don't have to worry about nuclear holocaust. <laughs> Dumb the angels will intervene, you know, the, the, the deities. The, yeah. the UFOs. magical people. So, yeah, whatever, yeah. Right. Where are you go. going? Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> right. We got Bring time for thing. one last? Yeah, we got okay. time for one What's last thing. What's the matter, Nora? Yeah. One, my, okay. my one last thing here. Uh, all right, back to materialism, which yes. we, we touched on a little yes. bit. And the other day you, you call, you know, the culture we live in is lives by the, the philosophy of materialism. Yes. How, how do we, how the fuck do we live in a world where the philosophy is materialism? Well, they're wrecking it. They're not going to live there longer. Right. That is one of the reasons I feel, for example, you know, that there's a book that was published by a sociologist lady at Harvard and a, and a technology guy at Caltech, little tiny pamphlet. It's like a sci-fi book, but it's a, it's a book written from the late 21st century, I think. And about after the planet has nearly been destroyed, but somehow there's a few people still exist. And they're talking about this period as the liminal period when something could have been done, you know, but it wasn't done. It's a, it's a book like that to give you kind yeah. of a visceral feeling of yeah. if they don't do it. And uh, they were saying one of the causes they say is that the scientists, they do say all of them, 14,000 of them versus three people who work for Exxon, they say it's happening <laughs> and it's hopeless, you know. If you don't do something, you know, they've been saying that for 15, 20 years. And and they say that the scientists knew it, but they somehow they didn't go out on the limb. They didn't all go out and march and Times Square or the White House or whatever. They they kind of just, well, they're not listening to us. You know, they they were too passive. And they pretended that they were doing their science thing of, well, it's a hypothesis. You can predict the future, you know, like, well, we're a scientist. So. Do you know what I mean? And then remember there were some emails that were leaked that the, the, the bad guys used and pretended that it was a hoax. You know, sure. that's, that's the base on which they make it a hoax. So, but the, in, the, in that future thing, looking back, they were saying that the scientists just weren't strong enough in, in persuading the people. They didn't freak out, in other words. And why? Because if you believe in materialism, then, okay, it's nice living on Earth, 
But you know, they're grown up. They're in their fifties and sixties. They have they have had knee replacements. They're fucked up. You know, they have divorces or whatever. Their kids did. They're alcoholics, and and you know, at least if everybody gets killed, the Death Star destroys us all. Then nobody will regret that they didn't aren't living anymore because they all won't exist, and nobody will be in hell, and nobody will be in a worse planet because nobody will exist. So it makes people reckless and passive about measures you can take in this life to assure at least a not a horrible future life for others who you love and yourself. And they say, well, we're still humanists and we care about our grandchildren, but they don't fucking care. Enough is the thing to switch off a few switches. Even, I was shocked yesterday, Jay Inslee, in the Daily Cost, which is a big liberal thing, sure. you know, they're, they're mentioning, well, Inslee came out with his plan and Beto came out with his plan for climate change, you know, but it's just Pollyanna, you know. Who's going to spend $1.5 trillion to fix it all in the next eight years? Yeah. They, even liberal one is saying that. Who asked them to say that? That's what the right-wingers say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they want to keep the $1.5 trillion for their next tax cut. That's right. They'll spend $1.5 trillion in a minute. And deficit spending, they don't care. That's, no, that's, that's pocket change. 1.5 trillion to save the planet and to, to, to make the America green, which there's some people at Stanford who have a plan state by state. Every state is 100% self-sufficient by 2025 with millions of jobs, good jobs that robots can't do. Right. And, then, and yet they dare say, oh, that's Pollyanna. This whole thing that people say, it'll never happen. Mm -hmm. Oh, that'll never happen. <laughs> About whatever they don't want to see happen. Right. Yeah. And, and they get the, the reckless courage from that by the fact that they get scot-free just by dying. That's, That's right. why my slogan is, nobody gets out of here a dead. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. I know and you know that, did you see the lady, Michelle Alexander? No. She wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. I want to get my op-ed about the election, but she, about the primaries. But she wrote an op-ed saying... She wrote The New Jim Crow. She's a sociologist from U, U Chicago, I think, and great person. And she wrote, uh, all, we have a, half, a million plus black guys incarcerated. And it's grow, growing, by, and numbers are still growing. And instead of being in school and uh, being doing rap music and, yeah. and, and be, be, be making stock picks and whatever, you know, if they were educated. And it's horrible, like slavery. Legal and, slavery. Uh, and so she wrote that book. And then she wrote this op-ed and she said, I don't believe in the future life, she said, but I wish I did, she said, <laughs> and I wish everybody did. Yeah. Because maybe those people who won't change their behavior, as inhuman as it is, would then decide they better change it. You know, and it's mm. a long op-ed. It's really a cool one. Mm. And I really love that. I welcome that, you know, mm. because that's the key. It scares you. you know, and they, even the materialists even convince themselves, Noah, they convince themselves that they're brave to accept nothingness. That's really brave. And I always tell them, you guys, when you're in the dentist chair and he's zeroing in on, on a root canal, you want nothing more than nothingness. You totally want it. And you're <laughs> not scared of it. You're scared of pain. That's what you're scared of, but not of nothingness. It's just total BS. Whereas the future life person, they're scared of a bad future life where there would be more pain. And therefore, they'll behave better in this life in a natural thing, as a natural enlightened self-interest thing. But, you know, I have the final word for them. I really finally got them. And they really get mad. <laughs> After 40 years, I somehow, I was reading another book. I didn't really nail it. They're supposed to believe only in evidence. 
only in proven experience stuff, something you measure. And, they, and yet they believe they're going to be in nothing and they die. And they, therefore they believe nothing is waiting there for them. They think if they, have a, they don't get tenure or something, they can shoot themselves and they hit nothing. That's got to be blind faith belief. Nobody, I always ask them, who discovered, which guy got the Nobel Prize for the discovery of nothing? That you, Steven Pinker at Harvard, and you, so-and-so material, Daniel Dennett and Tufts, and you guys are assuring the whole population that nothing is reality and that's scientific reality and it's all known and proven and established. And, but who discovered it? And what, when did they announce it? And how did they discover it? And who's going to get the prize for nothing? <laughs> You know, this Give reminds me, me. And that shuts them immediately down. It, it, I, it's I, less blind faith to believe Jehovah is a burning bush telling you to go see Pharaoh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like This is a Richard Dawkins' quote. Yeah. Death yeah. is the anesthesia that saves us from the pain of life. Yeah. That's what he says. Yeah. That's a fucking escapist bullshit. It's heaven. It's heaven for the materialist. It's yeah. nothingness. I know. It's and it a, allows yeah. them to let this planet be destroyed. And it allows George W. Bush to say to Bob Woodward, when Woodward said, don't you mind that your great-grandchildren will give you have a bad reputation of polluting the earth as an oil man and you know taking off climate protections, blah, blah, blah. And he says, no, I don't care about that because I don't care what they think about me because I won't be there. <laughs> so that means they don't care enough about their grandchildren. Yeah. You follow? You have to have a little enlightened self-interest in there, to really because of the ego. You know, those of, you know the ego people to 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 really start making some sacrifices. You know, this is why I think the whole soul land thing is is like great, but that idea of the spa experience in between lives. You know that one. You know, like people say, "Oh yeah, I like that." You die. You go to like a spa. That's great. No, I think that's... No, I, no, it's great. We have to convince Trump and people like that, <laughs> tyrants top. and dictators who cause death yeah. and destruction, Putin, that we, you know, they can come here to love, serve, remember, you know, if they would just leave there, you know. <laughs> they can go to, like, you know, the, the angels will come and, like, and they give them... Rub their back. Cure their orgasmic impotency. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then, therefore, they don't have to have seven trophy wives and shit bullshit. You know, they can have Sure. Someone, they can feel like a little inner streaming and whatever. You know? I, right? I, yes. And I agree. I, I like what you said on my podcast that we got to get... But, did I mention that? Well, you did in a different way, but you did mention that we've got to get some of these world leaders on an island where they can like oh yeah I have, have a fantasy. That's one of my fantasy, <laughs> <laughs> which is true. But I no, I'm talking about. I had this awful when I was exploring this concept of nothingness yeah. and realizing like oh shit, I don't think yeah. this exists. I don't think there is a nothingness. I think it just keeps going and going. I think I was on acid, and I had yeah. this horrible vision. Good for you that you don't get a break at all. That there is no spa in between but it's like you die and then maybe you have a little deja vu or something and you're just driving a taxi in new york well, you know, you're in the middle of your life it's not we think you reincarnate it, it you live the whole life it depends on how open you are by how openly you lived you know mm. but also remember that you know the love serve remembering squad yes <laughs> which are numerous jedi warriors bodhisattvas yes. buddhas <laughs> babajis maharajis whatever you want to say about them they're numerous ones. And one of the places they do a lot of work when, they, you know, they, to you, they're sitting there talking to you in your coarse body and they have their blankie and they're doing their thing, yeah. you know. But, but <laughs> at night, when you're sleeping, they're aware of the different people who are dying and being reborn and they can appear to them and they can try to coax them 
upward or into a better place yeah. or not to be so freaked out. They really do, you know, when people, the near-death experiences, people really do meet an ally or a guide or something yeah. who's someone they so recognize fun. from so within fun. from within their thing. And then that that's a real, I mean, it, imagine if you were, uh, and 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 if you recover your love to sort of remember Jedi warrior supernormal abilities, I never yeah. say supernatural, supernormal. That one of the places you'll like to help people is after they die, before they get reborn, right? Because they're very open in that time. They're like they're in a dream yeah. state. So if you can appear to them in a dream state and get them to really go positive. They can make major shifts, you know. Is that what this is? How do we know this isn't the in between state? Well, this isn't going. This is an in between. It's a different one, though. It's a little more congealed, you know. It's a little more. There's a little more brain plot. Okay, here. okay. <laughs> 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 you know, they say they say the minute you die, you're nine times more intelligent. When your holographic brain, subtle body brain, is free of the wetware, you're nine times more intelligent. You're automatically clairvoyant. And they, they, the reason they tell you that in the Book of the Dead is when you go to your funeral, when Uncle Joe is giving a hypocritical speech about, <laughs> oh, poor Duncan, I really missed the guy. <laughs> oh, gee whiz. And then you can read their subconscious lower oh, mind saying, that fucker, good riddance. <laughs> I, I don't have to be bugged by him anymore. And then don't be pissed off. Because you have to stay in a good mood, and right. everybody has ambivalence in their mind, and then a little bit Uncle Joe does like you too, you know. Yeah. They, so they go right. home, go through a whole thing like that. That's cool. Because oh, you're smarter God. in that between. You know, my friend. I don't mean to. Well, this is a crazy thing that happened. Yeah. Kind of the opposite of a miracle. Yes. When I was in high school, a friend <laughs> that I knew. Yes. I ran into him at the mall. This is when malls meant something. Yeah. And we would take acid and go to the mall. That's oh, North that's Carolina, crazy. just because it was fun to like watch that's people great. shop when you're on ass. Where, where? <laughs> Down in Chapel Hill. Blue Ridge. Uh, no, this oh. is the Blue Ridge Mall in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Okay. And yeah, we would go cool. there and get blasted. This is during the acid boom of the 90s when the Grateful Dead was. So you could get great acid. And we would take acid and just watch people go up and down the escalator. <laughs> the worst setting for acid well, I could possibly yeah. imagine. That, we thought it was hilarious because it's so weird. And you uh, realize how weird it is. P.S. While you guys are like, you're hanging out with the Dalai Lama, you're hanging out with Neem Karoli Baba, I'm at the mall on acid. <laughs> That's my You're bringing the vision to those people. That's cool. But this, my friend is walking out and he stops and I see him, I'm like, hi. And he's like, look what I got. The Tibetan Book of the Dead. He got, what? He got the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Oh, he did? Walden books. Oh. Must, it could have been your translation. Could have been. And he... Shows it to me, and he's like, it's the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And I didn't know it even what I thought it was like the Necronomicon or something. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but it sounds dangerous. <laughs> he was dead two days later. Oh, oh no. He was murdered. Oh, my. You're kidding. No, he was murdered. Someone picked him up and dropped him on his head, shattered his head. Oh, and who it, did that? Uh, he was buying drugs. Oh. But how weird. They it's like he book. knew... Somehow, maybe, yeah. maybe somewhere somehow he mind. knew and he grabbed it. Oh, that's yeah. That's uh, maybe he knew he was involved with really hairy people, you know, who are difficult and dangerous. No, he just this was just a random occurrence. But yeah, it's just odd how. But some... only two days. He didn't have time to read the book. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh shit! Too bad. Oh well. But that doesn't matter. Listen, have a look at Teshmara. They'll they'll show up. They will. Tara, you know, mm. Sri Devi, you know, oh, uh, hey. Kali. Durga, they'll show up. They will try their best. Do you have anything else? No, no, I'm, I'm good. good. You guys. Okay, well, the the okay. the love cert. Nope. 
Oh. The Love to Remember squad yes. needs a little of the blankie now. So, <laughs> they do? Yeah. Okay. So you had a mantra that you were saying, geez, we should have done that mantra. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, you, you mean just, the Sanskrit mantra? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that one. Can you do just yeah, a well, couple that, of minutes? You know, the mantra I was saying to the group was freedom, love, om, freedom, love, uh, home. But I didn't know that there was this uh, mantra of... Uh, I am loving awareness, which is same and really great. You know? yeah. and, the, and the I am part made me think of this mantra because the I am is precisely that responsible self-creation, which is the province of the tantras, you know, of the esoteric. And the reason it's of the esoteric is that, you know, it, it could be used by egotists to create egomania, you know, say yeah. I am so great. You know? yeah, yeah. So, so, but in the case of someone who's already realized resilience by having been able to surrender their identity grasping, it's it's creative actually. So the the Sanskrit one, which is foundation of of, of Anicel Yoga Tantra, is Om Shunyata Jnana Vajra Ham. And the shunyata is this openness or emptiness, which is almost better to say openness, less scary for people and quite accurate. Yeah. And om, as we know, is om, you know, invoking all the gods, all the Buddhas, body, speech, and mind, and so on. And then jnana, J-N-Y-A-N-A, is like gno, gnosis, you know, kno in English. It's the same word, actually, as the as the Greek word gnosis and the English word kno, mm. you know, the gnya, you know. Uh. So gnana, but it means, in this case, not subject-object knowing, but direct intuitive subject-object transcending knowing, knowing, knowing emptiness by being emptiness, by affirming you are emptiness, you uh. know. So sunyata jnana, intuition of emptiness, it's Vajra, and Vajra means the most powerful energy in the universe, which is associated with diamond and lightning, and yet means, in this case, love, because it's 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 not violent, in other words, although the lightning is violent, but this is, the Vedic uh, Vajra was Indra's weapon and was, was violent, but this is not violent, it's just infinite energy, it doesn't need to be violent, because it's infinite, it overwhelms anything. Love does. Mm. So, Om Shunya Danyana Vajra, the diamond of love, Swabhava Atma Koham, Aham is I am, Aham, you know, mm. I, and the Ham, the Ah gets dropped, you know, and Atma Ko is Atma, and the Ka part means the soulfulness, it sort of adds to soul, and Swabhava means reality, you know, you know, like deep reality. So, I am the soulful reality of the loving diamond of the intuitive oneness with emptiness. Wow. Wow. Okay, that's it. Can you just repeat the Sanskrit? Om shunyata jnana vajra svabhavatma koham Om shunyata jnana vajra svabhavatma koham Om shunyata jnana vajra svabhavatma koham Krishna Das, I want you to sing those uh, we'll ask him. We'll ask him. I do. Thank. Uh, thank. Okay. Thank you, Th- thank you guys. That thank you. Great Noah. job. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Venerable Duncan. Thank I'm sorry. You. As usual, Venerable. I talk too much. No, we love Nina it. Nina is not here. Tell me to shut up. No, <laughs> you're supposed to be talking. It's your job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, see you all later. Beautiful.